Hello and welcome to the Sense Network podcast. This six-part series was recorded at our National Advice Forum in 2019 and features industry thought leaders and financial advisors with a focus on advisor development. If you'd like to hear more about how Sense can help support your business, get in touch at sense-network.co.uk. For now though, on with the podcast. Uh, those of you who were at the AR Forum earlier this year will remember <coughs> myself and Mike did a session on value for money and about an awful lot of the, 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 the stuff that, that Rory was just talking about a second ago. So this beautifully links um, um, back into to Mike, building you up there. Yep. So I'll hand Stand over to up. Mike to do uh, State of the Advisor Nation. Let's just look at it from a slightly different angle. Thank you. Cheers. Um, good afternoon. Um, as I said, I'm supposed to be Abraham, and that means this afternoon I think you've got Abraham and Michelle, which is going to be a very, very hyperactive session this afternoon, so stock up on the caffeine for that one. Right, just to explain who this guy is, who the Landcat are, just in case you haven't heard of us. We're, we're a business that's based jointly in Leith, North London, Brixton, and the Isle of Wight. Um, makes it sound like some dodgy drug smuggling uh, county lines thing, but it's, it's kind of no, nowhere near that exciting, I'm afraid. We're, we take a very deep, passionate, um, sad interest in platforms and, and investing. We've all got kind of deep, hard time at various platform providers, journalism or whatever, and we, we really kind of quite love what we, what we do. Um, if anyone wants to have a conversation over lunch about kind of favourite bits of cobs or regulation, uh, apart from Rory, then yeah, we're, we're your people. Um, we're a business, we've got 18 people now who have just joined us. We've got our new recruit sat at the back, stood at the back, so we can see him say, hello Craig. Hello Craig. Um, Craig joined a couple of weeks ago and as you can see he's significantly increased the Landcat facial hair quotient, which was a very kind of strong part of our recruitment. And yeah, he's now the South London part of the business. Um, everyone else is based up north apart from a couple of us. I live on the Isle of Wight, which means I've got a bit of a bitch of a journey back home potentially this evening. But it does mean I'm 500 miles away from my colleagues and my boss and on a different landmass, which is something I highly recommend if anyone wants to do a career move. Right, state of the advisor nation. Um, so some of you might have seen we've been kind of pushing out um, through our various bits and pieces in the last month or so our annual advisor survey. I've spoken to a couple of you this morning who have completed it and kind of bemoaned the fact that it took about 20 minutes, half an hour minimum. So it's an in-depth survey and we're hugely valuable, grateful for your time, to, for that, the valuable time that you've spent completing all that. Gives us loads and loads of loads of insights we give you some free stuff um, uh, as a result of it so Craig will buy you a beer with his new expense account and we'll give you a free guide of our platforms for anyone who's completed all of that survey we've had about 300 responses from it so far so really significant uh, representation of the, of, the, of the market when I put these slides together last week we we're up to about 200 so it might evolve ever so slightly when you see the final results in a few weeks time but I just wanted to share kind of probably only about 20-25% of what we've got with with the audience at, at the moment so let's start off with the, the the basics so what types of firms are are we working with there's a little bit of kind of self-selection around this. So by definition, anyone who's completed this has put their hands up and said, yes, I want to work with the Landcat, help the Landcat and complete a Landcat survey. So as much as we kind of 
try to beat people up and get people to complete it, kind of the yeah, threats of violence doesn't really work with advisors. They've self-selected into this. Um, I'd like to think this makes people the good guys, so they kind of the types of advisors we tend to attract. They're, they're probably a little bit more engaged with industry events um, and in what's going on. That first slide of who the hell is the land cat, they don't need to know that. They, they, they understand who we are, and they've probably done this survey for a number of years. But this is what we've got. So about 70-something percent of firms are, are independent as a firm or as a, as, a, as a sole trader, another 10% there. And kind of the smaller ones are network members or, or, or restricted as well. So this cor correlates very nicely with FCA's own data, which they obviously get direct across the entire market. Around about 80% of firms are, are independent in terms of uh, across the entire industry. So again, pretty good representative sample of what's happening in the world comes through on our survey. Size of firms, so we kind of go from anything from kind of the small ones under 5 million, very, very small one-man bands, I suspect, around all of that, to kind of over 20, 25% with greater than 250 million. So quite a decent spread around what is going on in terms of, in terms of AUA. As part of this, we've done this a number of years and we're tracking this and these numbers are going in the right direction. And again, if you look at kind of other stuff that comes out of the FCA, you can see that broadly most advice firms have been doing really well in terms of assets growing and revenues growing over the, over the last four or five years. Most firms have had it really good since RDR. The confidence that they've had in their propositions is growing and growing, and the rocket fuel that you've had as a result of pension freedoms means the demand for your advice in a lot of cases is outstripping your ability to supply. So you, we can see these AUA figures growing all the time, and we can see revenues when we look at firm revenues growing all the time as well. I haven't got it on this slide, set of slides. It's kind of another topic to go down uh, for another day. But if you look at the profits against those revenues, then that's going the other way. So yeah, the good times are there, but the profits are going um, the, the other way down against those revenues. And I think there's a lot happening around that, but particularly kind of direct regulatory costs, um, PI cover, the cost of delivering your advice as well is a really, really important bit. We're going to do some work next year, early part of next year, around kind of ninja level prod. Um, we're, we're kind of thinking it about where you do everything Rory has t tells you to do, and the byproduct of that is not only um, you're compliant and you don't have to listen to, uh, to Rory again about it, um, but actually you get to that level, you understand those services and the propositions that you're going to deliver to your clients, and you can start to think about the cost of delivering those services and actually what's the most effective way to price those services as well, to charge those services. And I'll come back to the level of the point around fees uh, uh, in a moment. What's your role? Um, so we asked anyone to complete this. So um, increasingly, we spend a lot of time with, with power planners. If there's any power planners in the room, again, hello. Um, they tend to be probably the smartest people within the, within the advisor businesses in, in, a, in a lot of instances. And we very much want to get their views within there. But we've got a lot of owners and advisors within that as well. But yeah, if you work in an advisory firm, we, we're more than happy to hear what, what is going on. Averages, this is what our kind of our typical firm looks like. And we'll do a lot more stuff in a, in a few weeks' time once we've got the whole data to try and kind of put a more, more colour around this. So what's your technology footprint? How many clients have you got? What's AUA, et cetera, et cetera? All of that stuff will come through the usual channels you get at Sense. But typically, this is our, this is our average firm. So yeah, 12 advisors, four power planners within there. 
Right, on to, on to the subject of fees. Um, so we asked firms, just to explain kind of what's happening around this, we asked firms, what are you charging? What are your level of both initial and ongoing? And we gave people the option, well, the, the entire thing is option, as I said, we're not going to beat you up if you don't complete the, the, the survey. We gave people the option to say, right, I'm just doing a fixed fee or variable, or if you want to actually tell us the amounts, you can tell us that as well. So we didn't force people to, to do anything they weren't, weren't comfortable with. So for initial fees, you can see here, the vast majority are, are fixed fees. So 45% or so were saying we're doing a fixed fee. And then there the amounts at the bottom there where people were actually, they kind of fessed up, they admitted, told us what it, the, the levels they, they were charging there. So anything really between kind of 1% and 3%. But yeah, fixed fee, completely dominant for initial fees. We asked some, some kind of comments, some vox pops around that. So beyond just telling us what you're doing, tell us kind of a thought process to, to where you've got to this. And again, thinking through the stuff which we brilliantly stitched together with Rory's presentation, with, with me following, following on from it, thinking about Rory kind of defining the services, defining what, what, what you're doing and how you're going to charge that ultimately to the client. For initial fees, it feels like that's kind of, um, is, is kind of happening. Uh, maybe kind of not perhaps directly in the way which prod requires you to do it, but broadly most firms are there. That level of fixed fee, that fee which you're charging for initial work, most firms kind of have it in their heads of this is roughly the work that's entailed, or we know it's exactly what the work is involves, and we're going to charge accordingly around all of that. Um, we've got people here who are kind of putting collars and caps around it as well, so recognising that if you're doing a 3% fee, that's obviously a different monetary amount for, for large amounts. As I say, it feels like there's quite a lot of kind of thought and um, science almost beneath the, beneath the charging structures that exist for initial fees. We then asked about ongoing fees. Um, does anyone know much about competition law and the, the economics of competition law theory? Um, I'm, I'm sounding like I know roughly about this, but um, to explain what's happening on this, um, when the FCA did their asset management market study in four or five years ago, they kicked it off, they did a similar chart for asset management and asked all of the asset managers, all the fund groups, what are you charging for your services? And the chart was even more pronounced than that. So they had a whopping great chart at 150 basis points, a line at 150 bips for, a, for some funds, but nothing in between down to 75 and another whopping great line, and that was it. Every active manager, every asset manager charges the same thing. And the FCA at the time saw that as a huge indication that it was a very uncompetitive market. There was no competition pressure whatsoever into asset management something needed to be done about it. And that was probably one of the biggest indicators to kick off the, the, the asset management market study, which is three or four years later is starting to come through. So looking at this from an, uh, from an advised market um, context, and again, Rory has been saying a number of times that this is on the to-do list for the FCA. They're kind of constipated a bit with Brexit and, draw and DB transfers and all of the other stuff, but it's coming and they're starting to look at some of this stuff actually as, as, as we speak. Looking at how firms are charging, that doesn't necessarily to me to look to be a competitive market. Um, in today, we've got nobody doing over, a, uh, over 1%. I've just checked the figures on the 300 or so firms that we've, we, we've had through. Not one firm is saying we're doing more than 1%. So 1% is the absolute ceiling for, for ongoing fees around all of that. 
but yeah, it doesn't seem to be very competitive. Lots of kind of, we're going to charge 1%, we're going to charge 0.75, whatever it might be. And I don't think there's enough science beneath that as well. So when we go beneath kind of the surface around that, that um, analysis that we see, we see for initial fees of, yeah, we understand the cost of delivery, we understand the services we're going to do, how much work is involved. It's there for initial fees, but I don't think it's there for ongoing fees, or certainly not to the, the level of visibility we can see for, for initial. Um, yeah, I think this is going to be interesting when, when, when the FCA encounter this in, in their work, which they're kicking off at the moment for advisors. They've done the advised market, the, the asset management market study from, from a competition point of view. They've done the platform market study from a competition point of view. And yeah, series three of that box set is, is advisors and is, is coming soon. And as I said, we asked kind of the ongoing comments around all of that. A little bit of kind of, yeah, as I said, it's not just a 1% for everybody. There is some thought going on, on within that, but it's not having that clear line between the services, what the client needs, and what we're going to charge around all of that. And in particular, I think varying it for, for, for different amounts of needs. So we've got here, yeah, there's some caps and collars maybe. Got somebody here doing a t uh, kind of a, they call it like a Netflix subscription model, £200 a month or a percentage depending on the client needs. So a little bit of evolution starting to come through around all of that. But as I said, that, that previous chart I think is quite stark. Everyone's charging the same. And I'm not sure what the regulator's going to, whether they're going to like that when they see it. Right, where's the money going? Um, we spend a lot of time banging on about platforms of, of the Landcat, but actually um, there's increasingly quite a kind of uh, an increasing life outside of, outside of platforms. Quite a lot going into life companies. Um, I think if you split that down and put Royal London and Prudential as kind of sub-segments within that, you'll see an enormous amount going with there. So those two businesses wrote collectively in 2018 about as much as the top three platforms did in, in terms of gross inflows. So there's a lot of kind of off-platform stuff still going on, SIPs, direct with DFM. Yeah, it's not automatically everything that an advisor encounters from investment business goes, ends up on, on a platform. We talked a lot around the roadshows uh, that John mentioned earlier on around kind of cost and charges and investment propositions and, and what's going on. Talked a lot about kind of the, the, the pain that Mifid was introducing into your investment proposition to make it much harder to do something you'd previously been, been doing for a number of years. This has evolved ever so slightly. So last year we asked, do you run a centralised investment proposition? And the figure was 86%. So we're seeing a very slight tick down around all of that where firms are starting to go back to perhaps to constructing more bespoke stuff rather than a centralised process. But broadly, I mean, it's still 83% is still a big number. The vast majority of firms have a centralised investment proposition in place. Very rare that people are picking funds on a bespoke basis for every single client who comes through the door. We asked kind of what versions of that do you have? So um, again, very rare they're picking funds, very rare that everything tends to go into one type of model. There is some sort of segmentation happening with, within advisor firms. Multi-manager, multi-asset funds on the right, yeah, most firms will use that for a certain type of client. So that could be Vanguard Life Strategy, could be any one of the multi-manager, multi-asset funds that are out there. Provider-specific CIPs have ticked up quite a bit, so people are starting to buy into some of the provider solutions. And again, the Royal London stuff is top of that list around the, uh, the governed portfolio. It's very, very cheap, and for a certain client need, um, seems to be doing very, very well. 
DFMs on the model portfolio side, so hugely saturated market. Um, I think we've got over 150 model portfolio providers through our research database who will give you a bunch of funds and charge you 15 bips or whatever it might be on top of that. But yeah, quite a lot of people are using that as well. The MIFID thing was running advisory models. So again, if you weren't at the, the regional roadshows, we talked a lot about the difficulty that MIFID introduced in terms of the, the additional cost and charges, the additional work that it requires to do all of that, and particularly if you're running that on a bulk basis. But we still got kind of almost half of firms. That was over half last year. Um, so there's a bit of a tick down of people moving away from running their own stuff in-house. Um, but it's still, it's still pretty dominant. And we've got about 7% of firms who run discretionary models. And again, if you go into FCA data and the look for the permission, work, managing whatever it is you need to have if you're being a DFM, that's about 7% of firms across the board have the ability to run their own money. So yeah, that, again, that stands up quite well. But whereas the previous slide was looking at what firms are doing, so do you have this in place for a certain number type of client if they come through the door, this is looking at actually where where the money is going, where, where, what's kind of the dominant um, source of or out, outcome end, end point for the money. Advisory portfolios are still doing it. So as much as MIFID has made it painful, as much as people are starting to move away from that and, and kind of start to explore other options, around about half of the money is still going into your in-house model portfolios on an advisory basis. I think firms are finding it quite hard to move away from that. So we speak to firms and they get the MIFID point, and yes, it's a pain in the ass to do all of this stuff, makes that revenue, profit against your revenue, is probably a big contributory factor, but they don't want to move away from it. They're quite happy with the outcome that their portfolios are generating. It's been a big part of their proposition to their clients. They look at DFMs and think, do I really want to load another 15 basis points of cost onto it? There's no, there's no real compelling solution to that. So it feels like for a lot of them, they're just sucking up the pain of running their advisory portfolios and focusing on actually making sure it runs as efficiently as possible and keeping on what they're doing. But yeah, multi-asset, multi-manager funds are poor for popular. DFMs, as I said, the MPS, so the chart. We've got the laser? Pew! In the middle there, you can see kind of those third-party DFMs, those hundreds of model portfolios that are out there. They're starting to pick up a bit of money as well. And yeah, all of the bespoke stuff on the DFM side, and there's your packaged for your Royal London stuff. Lots and lots of different solutions out there, but it's still the advisor running it themselves. So that's... Yeah, you'll be using Finometrica, you're almost certainly using um, FE analytics, you're building this thing yourself and then delivering it to the client on an advisory basis. That's still where the, the majority of the action is at. Retirements. Um, again, uh, Abraham will, will talk very, very quickly about this this afternoon. Um, there was some stuff um, that was mentioned on the FCA sector views at the start of the year where, where they were posing the question that they didn't think that many advisor firms or enough advisor firms have updated their investment propositions in light of pension freedoms. So we kind of asked this, hey, yeah, have you got a, a different proposition? Have you got a CRP for your retirement clients? So yes, we're doing completely different, different set of investments compared to accumulation and decumulation. But the vast majority, almost 50%, saying yes, but it's much more about the processes, so managing the client behaviour, the cash flow, what else is going on around there, but the investment element stays to be, um, is, is, is keeping the same. 
No, but we're thinking about it. We've had five years since pension freedoms. We're still thinking about it. And no, because there's just, yeah, it feels like it's too hard. I'm not sure those two ones on the right-hand side feel to be a good place to be, particularly when, as I said, the regulator is saying, you need to be thinking about this stuff. Abraham's the expert around all of this, but that does feel to me to where, as I said, where advisors are ending up. They are thinking about this, but they're thinking actually the investment element that exists, whether you're pre or post retirement, remains the same. It's much more about managing client behavior um, rather than changing your, for, for funds that people invest in. Segmentation. Um, so going back to, 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 the, to the prod bit. Um, we did this last year, and um, it kind of supported, uh, again, Rory's stuff of um, asking firms about, do you know about prod? And it was like, huh, what's prod? And also, how do you segment your, 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 your client offering? Last year, it was all about portfolio size was at the top. Um, and service levels didn't really feature um, on, 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 this, on this graph at all. So things have changed. Something has changed within our audience. This is one of the biggest the areas where we've seen the biggest amount of change in the, in the, in the survey from, from, from year to year. We said, um, repeating again what was said a moment ago, portfolio size, I've always thought, is a, is a very dangerously naive way to, to create a, a segmentation. Just because you've got £99,000 to invest and I've got £100,000 to invest doesn't mean to say that we have different needs and different services. And particularly, I'm going to be a pain in the ass because I'm going to read every bit of disclosure which comes through and really kind of be on the phone hassling you and all the rest of it, whereas you might be the exact opposite and sitting back and not, not call, causing the advisor pain and all the rest of it. And yeah, very, very doesn't reflect the work that's involved, doesn't reflect the needs of the clients, and certainly doesn't make that hard link that was mentioned a moment between what actually is required and the solutions which are being delivered. But it's there now, service level, almost 50% are saying that's how we do it. Also, accumulation and decumulation. So going back to the previous point around recognizing there are fundamentally different needs for somebody at those stages. Portfolio size is still holding in there. We've also got a few, again, kind of this 10%, uh, no, I don't do it, or we're doing, yeah, don't really segment, I've got a specific target client. Yeah, again, repeating what was said a moment ago, um, I don't believe you, I think, is, is the quote that Rory says on that one. Going back to prod, um, so actually, rather than kind of, are you aware of prod, because you really should be now, have you actually done anything? Yes, directly, as a direct, we've done 10%, a little bit. So it's kind of influenced our thinking, and we've still got that kind of 20% I saw <laughs> on the previous slide. No, we don't segment at all, so prod's not relevant for all of us. But it is having an impact on, on, on the market. Um, We've always said for prod, it feels like it's something which advisors have kind of been there or thereabouts anyway. They've kind of been doing different solutions for different clients and mentally, if, if not kind of documented in the way with, which the FCA requires, firms are pretty much there or thereabouts. And yeah, we're, we're definitely seeing evidence of that coming through. Right, platforms, just to do a couple of bits on kind of a, the Lancat home ground of platforms. Over the last year, did you consider making any changes to platforms? Um, so yes, as part of our ongoing governance process, 60% of firms. Yes, as part of poor existing experience. Um, hello to Aegon and Aviva, if anyone's here from them. Um, so yeah, quite a kind of, yeah, we're doing something, we're looking at it. Very rare we see in a, the, the thing around an attractive proposition elsewhere. So kind of, yeah, you stick with the, the bride you've got and however attractive other things might look to be, you're sticking where you, you've got. 
So yeah, did you consider it? Lots of firms saying yes. Did you actually do anything about it? No, but we seriously considered it. Or no, actually not at all. Um, directed new flow. So that tends to be where, where things change. And I think it goes back, I'm picking on you twice now, so the point you made a moment ago around if you do decide to change platforms, it's far, far easier to direct new flow than it is to start to move existing clients. And we've seen that for the artists who begin with the letter of A, where they've hit those service problems and their gross and net flows fall off a cliff in kind of a 12 months following on for that. But actually, they start to recover that because the business doesn't move on. Every advisor I know was violently against Aviva for the first part of last year, but nothing's happened around all of that. They've kept the money, and actually their, their flows are starting to recover around all of that. So, yeah, there's a lot of, as I said, a bit of a contrast there. We're looking at it. We're going to do something about it. But, no, we really seriously considered it. And next time you screw up, Aviva, we're going to, yeah, next time you do another lifetime or a wrap or whatever it is, that's going to be the last, honest. Right, a couple of minutes left. Uh, cost and charges. Um, really interesting one, this, I think. So, again, mentioned earlier, last time I was stood up in front of a sense audience, we talked a lot about cost and charges. So, in light of a seemingly perpetual focus, what have you done about it? Um, proactively reduced by way of the investment component, 40%. So, it's the asset managers, it's the fund groups who are getting the beating around all of this. I was incredibly shocked to discover that um, no advisor seems to be reducing the total cost of ownership by their own advisor charge. What a shock that was. Uh, but actually, uh, yeah, that is obviously going to be how it happens. And the advisors have the ability to define that. So if you want to maintain your charges, and actually, this is the thing the client values. So they talk, talk about, we said, we said a moment ago, the client doesn't necessarily know nor care what platform they're on. The investment element does define a large part of our outcome, but when you work with an advisor, when you work with a planner, it's about the advisor relationship. So it makes, seems to me to make an awful lot of sense that actually the largest component of that total cost of ownership goes to the person where actually the client values that relationship the most. So yeah, advisors, it's asset managers, it's the investment element which is taking the brunt around all of that, so proactively reducing that cost by way of the investment component. Little bit around platform product charges, little bit about having it organically. Some are actually saying, do you know what, it's gone up. But yeah, asset management tends to be where, where the activity sits uh, at, at the moment. And I think it goes back, again, we, we said a moment ago about some of that focus on passive and active and the value that actives generating. Yeah, really, really stark chart, I think, for that one. Right, finally, um, last part of our survey, we gave people kind of one wish. So I've collected them into kind of various themes. What would you like to change about the financial services industry? Make consultancy a crime. Thank you very much to whoever put that one through the survey. Um, if that was one of the people who completed um, it, then yeah, come and see me and Craig after class for, for that one. But looking at, that was honestly only one, one comment. Looking at these in terms of more wider themes, and again, I think uh, things which actually collectively the industry needs to think about doing better and having a larger collective voice. Lots of stuff about scammers. So we're in a room of the good guys now. There are, unfortunately, rooms where the guys are not so good around all of that. So yeah, making them grow a big nose like Pinocchio every time they lie would be a good start. But I do think the industry needs to have this collective voice around actually 
yeah, there is a lot of value in working with the decent people and actually to really kind of collectively rally against the scumbags who rip people off. Um, have the FCA see and listen to client, what clients want from advice. It's not mountains of paper. Um, I think to be fair to them, they do understand that. There's some stuff actually they've put out a couple of years ago saying that they recognise that in the real world, it's only weirdos like me who read that mountains of disclosure that people come out. But it's so slow to change things around that. Again, this collective voice needs to improve things around it. Make the technology talk to each other. I was chatting with somebody earlier around that is the big thing that we're starting to find out from advisors where I think they're going to, over the next two or three years, start to become really, really much more discerning around this for their platform and tech providers. And whatever bits you're using, whether it's timeline to e-value or just picking on people who are around today, if you're not integrating, if you're not talking to you, I want to have these systems in my business. If you're not doing it, I'm going to lose you and get a system which will integrate, which will make that cost of delivering much, much more efficient. Particularly, we're seeing that kind of with, with kind of the, the next gen, those groups of advisors are very, very discerning around all of this, I think is going to be a feature in the next couple of years. Percentage fee structure disappears, replaced with a reg reasonable regular fee that a client sees value in. Yes, even though... We're, we're seeing that price clustering, the 1% and all the rest of it. I think people are recognizing that that perhaps is going to need to evolve over the next couple of years. Ultimately, improve trust in the profession. So again, big, big kind of exercise, I think, collectively for everybody to get involved with that. I am 24 seconds over, so I apologize completely for, for that one. I'm blaming Craig because I told him to wave at me when we finished, got close to finishing. But thanks very much for your time. Enjoy your lunch and see you soon. If you'd like to hear more about how Sense can help support your forward-thinking IFA business, or if you'd like to see what learning resources are available for free, go to sense-network.co.uk.